Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. And if you will turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1. Good morning. Glad to see you here with us today. Um, If I can have you stand with me so we can give our reverent honor and respect to the word, the infallible word of our Lord, as we read our scripture reading this morning. This is Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let me open us in prayer before I continue. Lord, We are so thankful for your word and that you have passed it down to us, that we are able to know what you have said throughout history and to know who you are, what promises you have made, and that you have kept them so we can trust that you will continue to keep the promise you made in your new covenant that Jesus will come. We're thankful for you and everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when I was five years old, Uh, My neighbors, the Baxies, would hold a block party every year. Now, in Houston, July 4th is a pretty brutal weekend, so they would do it during uh, Canadian Independence Day instead. A little weird, but that's okay. Um, But part of this block party is that they would expect, or they would have, every kid on the block perform something. Now, if you think I'm introverted now... Um, imagine me at five years old, where if you might know who, no, no, I would know who you are, but you certainly wouldn't know who I was. I would have just been a fly on the wall. If I spoke, it would have been like this. I would have barely, you know, I don't even know the mic picked that up when I tried to speak. Um, anyways, I was slated, I don't know whose brilliant idea this was, but I was slated to sing the nursery rhyme, Little Bunny Foo-Foo. You know. <laughs> Little bunny foo-foo hopping through the forest, scooping up the field mice and bumping them on the head. Well, five-year-old me did not sing Little Bunny Foo-Foo. I stood there, my, you know, I was the youngest of, of my family's kids, so there's a bunch of kids around my age, but my older siblings were there, and their older, cooler friends were there. So five-year-old me stood in front of everyone, put my hand up like a visor. I, I, I hope my intention was to block out the sun, but I think maybe I just had an idea that I would be invisible. <laughs> um, and so I stood there paralyzed. And I stood there paralyzed for what felt like the entire five years of my life at that point. <laughs> um, but <laughs> thankfully, my older brother Darren came to my rescue. So at this point... Darren would have been 11 or 12, 
So, you know, that middle school age where you're certainly way too self-conscious to yourself sing Little Bunny Foo Foo in front of people. Um, and he was there with his friends, and I'm sure, you know, I know if I were in Darren's shoes, I probably wouldn't have done what he did. Um, but Darren was always a very supportive and loving brother. Um, so much so that if he's not on the live stream right now, I guarantee by this time next Sunday, he will have called me to talk about my sermon today and probably correct my memory of what happened here. <laughs> um, but Darren, in the midst of my paralyzed fear, stood up from his chair and confidently sang, Little Bunny Foo Foo. And then my sister joined, some of the other kids joined to support me. And honestly, looking back, I still don't think I sang a single word. I still think I probably sat there like, when can I run away? Um, but in that moment, Darren was my hero. And so as we spend our next five weeks going through the book of Jonah, you might be asking yourself, why? Right? Isn't this like a children's church story that like, we all already know? And you're right, it, it, it really is a whale of a tale. But there is a lot more packed in to Jonah than what we ever learn in children's church. So we'll constantly be reminded that God is sovereign over everything. He is responsible for salvation, and he is the one that providentially supplies us the means given to us to come to him, even though we don't deserve that at all. Even when we run from him and completely reject him, he still will come for us. And we're also going to see how Jesus is the better Jonah, how Jesus is all that Jonah was supposed to be and more. So I'm going to start this morning. Well, this morning, we're going to ask three questions. So our first one is, who is he? The answer here is Jonah is a prophet. So we're just going to look at verse 1 for now. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So who is Jonah? That's not really a ton of information that we get. Um, and like this is the book named after him. I thought we'd get more than just um, he's the son of a guy that I, I'm not really sure is written about anywhere else. Um, but... Uh, we're not even really told that he's a prophet here. Um, and as we know, the actions of Jonah throughout the book, it doesn't seem like he was a great prophet. Um, but we are told, right, what we are told is that he's the son of Amittai in this verse. And there is a short reference earlier in the Old Testament to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Uh, so if you don't mind turning your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. I'll give you a second to do that. And there's going to be a lot of Bible references today, so be prepared. Um, I'm going to start at verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the king of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, 
the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there is none left, bond or free, and there is none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So Jonah would have lived in some pretty tough times. Um, under the reign of Jeroboam II, a king that we just read did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as many of the kings of Israel and Judah after the split of the kingdom did. Um, but being a prophet would have given him a special place of privilege among the Israelites since he was able to hear directly from God. Um, and then, as we can tell in our passage, he's going to be used as a servant of God. He's going to call him to do something. But this is the only prophecy of Jonah that we have in our entire Bible, is that the border of Israel would expand back to the heights that they were during the reign of Solomon. Um, actually, even in the book of Jonah, he doesn't prophesy anything really himself. Um, it's actually kind of a, a weird book of the prophets because it, it doesn't fit the flow of any other book. It really actually would fit better in Second Kings, where we just read, um, because it fits in much more like the narratives of Elijah and Elisha. So, he prophesied that the border of Israel would be re-expanded back to the days of Solomon. That'd be a great boost for the morale of Israel, um, who had lost a decent portion of their land from continued assaults by the Assyrians at this point. Um, and really, this probably resulted in Jonah being a bit of a nationalist, if you can imagine. I'm sure pride for his nation, especially one known as God's chosen people, plays a large hand in his actions and attitude throughout the book of Jonah. But we get another piece of information about Jonah in this passage from 2 Kings. Jonah was from Gath-Hefer. Now, where is that? It's in Galilee and was actually really surprisingly close to Nazareth. So I'm going to show you a map real quick. Sorry for those online. You can't see laser pointery things, but... Um, as you can see, right, Gath-Hefer, Nazareth, really close. There's a Sea of Galilee. And it's actually kind of hard to find a map like this because I don't know that Gath-Hefer still existed in the New Testament times. So, like, often when you look at the back of your Bible and you find the maps, there's, like, here's maps during the divided kingdoms, and then here's a map during the New Testament. And you're like, cool, well, the cities that don't exist in both don't share a map usually. But um, Gath-Hefer is only five kilometers, which for us from a nation that's been to the moon, three miles from Nazareth, where Jesus would have grown up. And while he was born 800 years before Jesus, right, they would certainly share some similarities growing up close to each other in this age. Um, and he certainly lived closer to Jesus than any other prophet. Some other prophets are said to be from Galilee, but like if you're down here, is that really Galilee? If you're over here, is it really Galilee? I don't know, but that, certainly this is the region. Um, and for those of you, like me, we're hearing five kilometers or three miles is kind of a, a meaningless thing. Um, let's look at a map of Atlantic. So if you were to drive all the way down 22nd Street from 
Hillside Hope here to the Rock Island Inn and Suites here. That's 2.8 miles. That's how far away Jonah would have lived and grown up from where Jesus grew up. So, as we look back towards Christ, let's remember what did the Jews of the time think that the Messiah would be? Right? They were looking for a prophet. Um, and the Pharisees actually kind of partly reject Jesus um, because he's from Galilee. If you want, you can turn to John chapter 7 with me. And this is verse 50. John chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The Pharisees based in Jerusalem would be dismissive of those country bumpkins that lived in Galilee. Jesus, however, was much more than just a prophet. Right. A prophet's all that they were expecting, but it's clear to us that Jesus is also priest and king. Unlike Jonah, right, Jesus wouldn't shirk his responsibilities. He came knowing what he had to do. He came knowing that he would be tempted, tried, um, tested, persecuted, and crucified. He knew he would do this while being completely innocent that he would not transgress the Mosaic law. He knew he was going to be the spotless lamb that paid for our sins on the cross. He also knew that he would raise from the dead and sit on his throne until he returned. Now, in contrast, Jonah didn't know exactly what he would be called to do from the beginning of his life. But as a prophet, God did speak to him directly and clearly, telling him what he was supposed to do. So let's turn our question to what Jonah was called to do. This is our second question. What is he commanded to do? To preach repentance. This is verse 2 in Jonah chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Jonah is called to do something that the Jews at the time had not been like directly called to do which is the go to the nations and call against it. Many prophets had prophesied against the nations, but they got to do it from within the comfort of of Israel. They didn't have to, they weren't called to go into Nineveh and and, uh, preach repentance to them to tell them of their wicked ways, like Jonah was. But... Many prophets did prophesy about foreign nations, and they typically served a few purposes. Look at a couple of them here. One would be to tell Israel of their coming deliverance from another people. The second one would be to warn or remind Israel of the consequences of depending on other nations instead of God. And the third would be to humble Israel by showing them their status was as low as the surrounding nations. So what exactly was the deal with Nineveh? It wasn't the capital of Assyria yet, but it would become it later. Um, But it was still a major and important city in Assyria. 
Um, I'm going to look at Genesis chapter 10, if you want to flip with me. Um, going back to a genealogy passage that sometimes when we read, we go, why? This is a bunch of names I can't pronounce. Um, but there's some interesting things here. Um, so this is Genesis 10, verse 6 through 12. The sons of Ham. Now Ham is kind of like the Cain of Noah's children. Um, Right, Cain is the, the son of Adam who killed his brother Abel and is kind of outcast because of that. Um, if we think of Noah as almost like a, Jesus is the second Adam, but if we kind of think of Noah as like being that next uh, fatherhood figure that then everyone comes from because the flood had wiped everyone out, Ham would kind of fall in that next round like Cain is being the one cast out. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush. Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabdaka, the sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Roboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. So through the lens of history here, Nineveh is shown here to be an ancestral city of Assyria, likely one of the great city-states upon which Assyria would be founded. Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent civilizations in the ancient Near East. Their kings would write about their victories in battle, depicting large fields covered in dead bodies. Those whom they captured, they would chop off their legs, chop off one of their arms, leaving just one intact so that they could shake the hand of their remaining arm in mockery. They would force family members to parade around with their loved ones' decapitated heads on poles. To their prisoners, they would stretch out their tongues, stretch them out, and flay them to display their skin on walls. And finally, the Assyrians would burn children alive. With all of this, the Israelites had been sieged by the Assyrians for years upon years. With all this in mind, God still spoke to Jonah and commanded him to go preach repentance to them about all the evil that they had done. If you think at this point, how many non-Israelites had repented and turned to God for their salvation? If we think through scripture earlier, um, a couple that come right off the head is there's Rahab, uh, the prostitute in Jericho that saves the spies that go in in Joshua 6. Um, And then there's Ruth who would marry Boaz. And interesting enough, Rahab and Ruth both end up in the genealogy for Jesus. That's super cool. Um, And there's a few others, like Moses' father-in-law. But there's not a ton. And the Jews really didn't go out and preach to the nations like we're called to do. Except they were kind of supposed to, right? God, the, the Great Commission isn't necessarily a new commandment, but it was made more abundantly clear for us in the New Testament. 
that God had called Israel to be a standout people and a light to the nations. Um, That God would be known either through the blessings they received, through their obedience, or through their curses because of their disobedience. Their way of sharing the gospel was centripetal or inward-focused. I want to look at a passage in 1 Kings chapter 8 real quick. Uh, This is 1 Kings 8, verses 41 through 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to do, in order that all the peoples of earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So while the Israelites didn't go out and call nations to God, this is really more of a failing of the Israelites than it is of God's intended plan. If you even think back to God's original calling of Abraham back in Genesis 12, uh, we'll notice that his intention is for the world to know him. This is the first three verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Jesus also went out and preached repentance, not only to Israelites, but he also preached to those whom the Israelites and the Pharisees condemned, like the Samaritans and the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, if we think back to John chapter 4, you don't need the turn, I'm not going to actually read any passages from it, but John chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, This is certainly in stark contrast to Jonah and how he felt about Gentiles um, and how the Israelites would have at that time because what does Jesus do? The first person he reveals who he truly is to is a despised Samaritan woman at a well, a woman who had had many husbands, and the man she was currently living with, she was not married to. Someone that certainly the Pharisees would have hated at the time. But not only would Jesus reveal himself to non-Israelites, he would have compassion and perform miracles for Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 8, which you're welcome to turn with me to, this is verse 5 through 13. Matthew 8, chapter, or Matthew 8 verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, 
and and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This Roman centurion, right, an officer of a hundred men, understands what the Israelites at this point had not understood, right? He's able to recognize that Jesus is the awaited Messiah. He's unable to understand that he is God and has power and authority that no one else had quite understood. And what's Jesus's response to a Roman, a Gentile? Knowing him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then Jesus mentions that many will come from east and west, right? Meaning around the entire world, not just in Israel, and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being the forefathers of the Jewish faith at this point. A clear message that salvation is not for Jews only, but for the world who comes to Christ. So, we've seen what Jonah's been commissioned to do. Let's take a look at what he actually does. So, what did... I think I pressed the button, I was trying to connect, so we'll see if it... uh, if it gets there. This worked well in practice, but uh, there we go. He run away. What does that mean? Well, like any good pastor, I can also use alliteration in my sermon points. You see, the P is silent, like in pneumonia or pterodactyl. Actually, dinosaurs are really cool, so we're going to stick with pterodactyl for that example. Um, so verse 3 of Jonah... Chapter 1 is, but Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. All right, so Jonah's response to God calling him to go to Nineveh and preach, to run as far as he possibly could. I have another map for y'all, because apparently today is a map day. Um, So Nineveh, if you're not sure, is kind of in northern Iraq today, about 550 miles from Joppa, where Jonah uh, went to take port. But instead of going that way, he ran the clear opposite direction, 2,500 miles west to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain. Um, and I'm sure that if, when he arrived, if he had arrived in Tarshish, if he had met some explorers that were like, hey, we have this theory, okay, that the world is not flat, but it's round, we're going to go west of here. And like, worst case scenario, it's flat and we fall off the world and we die. Best case scenario, we like end up in India or some newfound place we've never heard of. And I'm sure he probably would have been like, awesome. 
Best case scenario, I'm even farther from where I'm supposed to be. Worst case scenario, I'm dead and I don't have to do what I'm supposed to do. But what's interesting to me in this passage is that the Hebrew here actually supports the idea that Jonah didn't just book passage on a ship, like buy a plane ticket to go to Tarshish, but that he actually, and it's not 100% sure on this, but the Hebrew supports the idea of this, that he actually might have hired a ship and crew to go to Tarshish, which would be, you know, prohibitively expensive. Um, it would have probably required him to sell his home and everything he owned, which to him would have been a good idea. He's not planning to come back there anytime soon. That's, that's back in the wrong direction in his mind. Um, but, right, not only is Jonah making the choice to flee from where God has called him to go, but he's making the decision to flee from the Lord. Um, to us and to Jonah, that's a ridiculous-sounding idea. Jonah would have been fully aware that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere at once. Um, but that's still his intention, um, is to flee from the Lord. And based on the cruelties of the Assyrians that I spoke of in the last section, uh, it's not that surprising that Jonah would be terrified to go there. I think we all would. Um, and since no other prophet had ever been called to go into a hostile nation and preach repentance to them from the evil that they've been committing, um, you can understand his fear. Um, I'm sure his experience, too, since he had been the one who prophesied the expansion of Israel borders, was that it would be, uh, well, he, I'm sure he had had either family members or friends who had had some of these cruelties from the Assyrians happen to them. Um, but Jesus, however, has a heart for all of those who are far off. This is back in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Essentially, this is what Jonah is being called to do here. Right? If the Pharisees couldn't stand that Jesus would eat with sinners and tax collectors, how much more of would they despise those whom the law had not even been given to? I'm sure Jonah felt the same way. So Jonah runs away from the presence of the Lord. But what did Jesus do? Jesus knew the task that he was called to do, an even graver and more difficult task than that of Jonah. Not only was Jesus to preach repentance to people, but he had to be the one to sacrifice of himself and to bear the weight of sin and guilt on the cross. 
And this was no easy task. And Jesus knew it. Before he was arrested, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knew exactly what death he would have to undertake. The most barbaric and torturous form of execution known to man. He could have fled like Jonah, but he didn't. Jesus didn't even fight back against it, right? As he's tried, he doesn't speak a word. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way that man is. From Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never fell into temptation like we do, or like Jonah did. Jesus didn't flee. He stood up against the weight of everything that was against him. Right? He never gave in to that pressure. And so while we say he can sympathize with us, he can sympathize with us even greater than we can ever imagine because he never felt that relief that comes when that temptation finally blows you over and you um, fulfill that desire of the flesh to sin. He stood against that all the way. So he felt temptation like we never have. Jesus went to all people. Unlike Jonah who fled, Jesus went to the Jews, to the Samaritans, the Gentiles, the Romans, the sinners, the tax collectors, and he healed them, he preached to them, he fed them, he cast out their demons, and he had them come to faith in him. How far and wide are Jesus and Jonah here? Not only this, Jesus completes this transformation of how we are supposed to spread the good news when he gives us the Great Commission in Matthew 28. This is verse 18 and 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not only should we not be fleeing from what we're called to do, but we should be running headlong towards it. How actively are we going out into every nation and making disciples of Jesus Christ, baptizing them and teaching them to obey his commandments? Not only in the whole world, how are we doing this in our own community? And how can we do a better job of this?
This summer, we've been really blessed by hearing from so many of our global partners, both in Sunday school and in our Sunday morning worship service. We're blessed as a church to have so many people who are going out and fulfilling the Great Commission, as we just read. It's a hard, dangerous, and arduous task, but they're living out this commission and giving up so much for it. What are we sacrificing for the gospel? We all know people who are not saved, whether it's friends, family, co-workers, the person I buy from my coffee from. Um, what has kept us from sharing the gospel with these people? I have a few theories. One is that we work in a hostile environment. Not me personally, because I work here with Don. Um, <laughs> and fear that sharing our faith could hurt our potential for promotions or even camaraderie on our team. Or we fear that friends, family, and coworkers will ridicule us for being old-fashioned in a postmodern age. Or we're not sure that we have all the answers to the tough questions that people might ask us. Or the one that I think is really the most likely is that we're just plain scared. This last one is likely that true answer for most of us. And we might make up other excuses that like cover that fear, like they'll know Christ by the way that I act. Well, we just read that that's kind of how the Israelites were acted and how well did that work for them. Or we think, you know, I'll just leave this tract and they'll answer all the questions that they have, or if they have more, then they'll come to me. Not saying that either of these things are bad things, but they're not enough, right? Because if you think you're scared to share the gospel with them, they're probably scared to come to you with their questions. So are we really striving to be like Jonah? Or, are we re or like Jesus? <laughs> or are we really just copying Jonah? Are we doing everything possible except for the work that we have been commanded to do? Right? We're not all called to be the manager in our office or to be a CEO or whatever it is we're looking for next in our life. But we are all, each and every one of us, commanded to share the gospel and to fulfill the great commission and hasten in the return of the Lord. So who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you teaching about Jesus to? Who are you discipling? Who's discipling you? Unfortunately, we might not know about future conversions of people that we share the gospel with, but it does happen. Think of some of the stories our global partners have told us this summer, where they're in hostile nations, where it's technically illegal to proselytize, and yet they're still doing so, risking everything. They might not ever see the fruit of their labors, but someone else will, and for, hopefully they do see some of their fruit. But right, just like us, when we share the gospel, we might not ever know that that person in 20 years comes to Christ because of what we told them, but someone else will get to see that. 
So this doesn't mean we don't share. We have to continue to share the gospel. So my question for you is, what has God called you to do? Who is God calling you to share the gospel with? I'm just going to give a minute to pause and reflect on those questions. What has God called you to do? And who is God calling you to share the gospel with? And how are we going to go about doing this? I would suggest writing it down, making a plan. So if you write things down, you're more likely to do them than if I just put in my head, I'm going to share the gospel with this person right now, or when I get home or whatever. Right. If I write it down, I'm more likely to do it. So don't be like Jonah and run away. You can't run from the Lord. Be like Jesus. Be prepared to lose everything for what you have been called to do. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for everything that you have done for us, that you did come. You lived that sinless life. You bore our sins on the cross. You paid the debt for our sins, and you paid the ultimate price, and that you rose again for us. Help us to remember what you have called us to do, to go out into all nations, including our own communities, and to disciple and make you known. We're thankful for you and everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.